This special edition episode of the Writer Dojo was recorded in my hotel room at FenCon 2022. The sound isn't great, but let me tell you, this one you're gonna want to hear. Enjoy! Welcome to the Writer Dojo! With your host, Steve Diamond. What is up? And Larry Correa. Yippee Today's episode, Picking the Brain of Dr. Rob Hansen. Welcome back to the Writer Dojo, everybody. As you can tell from the title of our show today, we have a special guest with us, Larry. That's right. We are here in Texas, uh, coming to you from FenCon, where we are all guests. And Dr. Rob Hampson is a good friend of ours, uh, and we've done a lot of stuff with him over the years. And he is also not just a writer and with with a really interesting writing career, which we'll get into a little bit, but uh, on the side. He is one of the <laughs> world's leading neuroscientists. Rob, excuse me, Dr. Rob, introduce yourself, man. Tell, tell, tell our audience, just a, uh, give us, give us the, uh, the short resume version of yourself. Oh, wow, the short resume version of myself. I'm Rob. To start with, I seldom insist on the doctor. I only actually use that if I'm mad at somebody, so don't ever feel obligated to call me doctor. Okay, uh, doctor. <laughs> ooh. But uh, I started out as a lowly graduate student in physiology, pharmacology, just trying to figure out how things work. I loved the TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man. I was convinced I wanted to do that. And <laughs> that field didn't exist. but. Over a period of about 40 years, now it does, and I'm very proud to be involved in unlocking secrets of the brain and being able to study when the brain works well, when the brain doesn't work well, and what does it take to make it work. It's pretty interesting. We've... uh... I feel like every time we talk to a new Bane author or another Bane author, Larry, somehow it, Rob Hampson has kind of become the Kevin Bacon of Bane. <laughs> There's like the two degrees. It's not even five degrees anymore. It's like it's like the one or two degrees of Rob Hampson. No, excuse me, of Dr. Rob Hampson. <laughs> this is true. Um, it's actually interesting because um, but a little, little, little background here, guys, is if you've heard of like John Ringo's Black Tide Rising, uh, zombie series, very, very well-known, bestseller. Uh, Rob was the um, science advisor guy to make that plausible. Uh, earlier we were talking to David Carrico, and uh, you helped him with his vampires. Uh, I have myself uh, consulted with him for, um, uh, in Gunrunner, we had some battlefield brain surgery and also some other interesting little tidbits there that he showed me, and so it, we're, you're a very useful man for science fiction authors to know. I kind of feel like at this point, Rob, you need the trifecta. And you, you need, you've, you've done zombies, you've done vampires, and a certain someone in this room named Steve Dunn happens to be writing a story about werewolves. I almost feel like you and I should, uh, should have a fun little conversation. <laughs> well, werewolves would be fascinating. I mean, when the werewolf transforms, is there enough room for all of that brain? I mean, that's some 
fun stuff right there. Oh gosh. Now, see, see, and now this is going to happen. Now this is going to happen. You and I are going to have some conversations. Oof. So now, now here's here's the thing, Rob. Apart from being Mister Mister Brain Dude, excuse me, Doctor Brain Dude, <laughs> you're an author too, um, and and as we've been at these signings and stuff at FenCon, and we've been on some panels and stuff. You, You've mentioned more than a couple times your your love for the Six Million Dollar Man and how that's inspired you for a novel that's coming out from Bane later this year. So, so why don't you tell us about your new book? The Moon in the Desert is coming out in May. No, no. The Moon in the Desert is coming out in March of 2023 from Bane. As has been mentioned several times, as you said here at the con, I was inspired by the Six Million Dollar Man. I wanted to be able to do that. Bionics was my fandom, to, to be honest. The field didn't exist, but I know the people who created it. And I also know that there are a few things that were predicted in 1972 when the book came out, 1974 when the TV series started, that don't really apply today for the past decade or so, right? perhaps two decades, DARPA was at the forefront of pushing novel prosthetics, including the what we now call a bionic arm and other limbs. And I've met the people who did this. I've been in the conferences. The first thing that came to my notice was that anyone who was involved, any civilian who was involved receiving the bionics were volunteers, which was a major difference from the book. Uh, the second major difference is that these are people who just want to go about their daily lives. So the moon in the desert is about a guy, yes, he's an astronaut, but he's a flight surgeon. And when he's injured, and has to be rebuilt. The reason why is because he just wants to go back to doing what he's doing. But unfortunately, as a triple amputee, he's deemed you know, medically disabled. He's retired from the service that he was working for. And eventually, he's gonna to have to prove himself to get back into space. And that's the essence of the moon in the desert bringing it up to date, uh, bringing in a perspective from the people who've been involved, people I have talked to who have received prosthetics, what they want, how they feel, and try to put a lot of this into a story. That sounds awesome. And I'm very excited. You said March, I can't remember. I, there's something about my brain, I don't know. Thingy in the brainy, right? So March of next year, right? That's correct, March. I know what's wrong with Steve's brain because I listened to uh, uh, Rob's uh, earlier uh, presentation as your as the science guest of honor at FenCon. I think Steve's megahertz are off. I've got <laughs> I've got no megahertz you can, anymore. You can tell you can tell that I uh, as an I got an accounting degree, so the amount of science I had to take was very minimal. This is why I'm a fantasy author. <laughs> well, that fits. It's 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 okay. If Steve's megahertz are off, we can actually. Um, we could just make the macrohertz, perhaps. <laughs> Whatever works. I don't even know what you just said. Uh, okay. I, I, okay, so I, I do actually know a little bit about uh, 
uh, Rob's um, uh, research, and I got to I got to tour your lab a couple years ago, and that was a real treat. And I, like I said, I was able to use quite a few things from that in a uh, science fiction novel, and also I got to attend the uh, neuroscience conference with you. Uh, what is the actual name of that? That is the Society for Neuroscience. Absolutely fascinating, and just to give you guys an idea, um, Rob Hampson at that is a rock star, a like literal rock star, and he walks around and everywhere you go, people are very much, oh my gosh, it's you. And the reaction you get in that crowd is, because I've known you for writing stuff for many years. Uh, I mean, we've been friends on uh, book signing type stuff and cons and that kind of thing. But in the uh, neuroscience world, your research has actually pushed some boundaries, hasn't it? It has. We are the first team that was able to demonstrate a technique that we hope will become a medical implant device for Alzheimer's disease. And that would restore memory function in people who have lost it or are losing it. Hopefully the stage we enter at is the one in which a person begins to lose memory function. It's not the memories themselves we're working with, but the ability to make and process those memories. So that's why I say memory function. And it's our group, and it is a large group, and I have a lot of colleagues at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, at the University of Southern California, and other groups that work with us who have been responsible for this. But we're the first people to do it using the type of code that the brain makes itself for memory. And we had some phenomenal success with it. What I really like about what you're saying, Robin, and it's not just how interesting it is, what I really like about what you're saying is how clear it is for a stupid guy like me. Because I don't understand the technical aspects of anything that has to do with medical sciencey stuff. Again, you know, I'm, I'm just a dude. I'm, I run a spreadsheet for, for a living. But everything that you just said, it was explained in a way that a dude like me can understand and understand the ramifications of. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think there are writer uh, applications to that. Now, for, for the last part of this episode, or for, for of the before we go on our break in, in about five or six minutes here, because uh, the back half of the episode, um, I want to talk about, you know, bad brain tropes, basically, right? Um, for the remainder of this portion of the episode, I kind of want to address what we, what we were just talking about. Look, you and I, especially at this con and, and, and a couple other things that we've been to, um, I haven't known you near as long as Larry has, but, but I, think, I think you and I, it's funny how you and I have kind of instantly just gotten along. Um, and every time I sit down, I mean, heck, last night we were up till 2 a.m. Just, just shooting a breeze, right, and having a good old time. And every time I talk with you, one, I feel a little bit smarter. And we just have these awesome conversations. And it brings me back to the same point. It's crazy to me. It's amazing to me how you can explain some of this sciencey stuff that a guy like me who doesn't understand any of it can go, oh, that's really cool. I kind of get it. How are you, how, how the heck are you able to do this? And how are you able to do it in writing? Yeah. 
start with, I was a Sunday school teacher for four-year-olds. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It does. You learn how to make analogies. You learn what terms are going to be understood by the people you're talking with. But frankly, science fiction conventions have a lot to do with this. I have been attending conventions as a panelist for more than 10 years, and I get called upon to talk science. I, yes, I write. Yes, I'm a writer. I'm a scientist first, and I also teach the students, the graduate students at my university, how to communicate science. And the first thing we do is have them give a talk, and then my postdocs and I and their classmates pick it apart and say, would grandma understand this? And so we do a lot of that sort of thing. I, this is something I firmly believe in. This is why I do this, is I try to make sure that whoever I'm talking to understands. And by the way, when you're talking to a crowd or when you're talking to two or three people, you watch their eyes. And when their eyes glaze over, you have to change your explanation. Back at, geez, where was this? I think this was Worldcon 2013. Uh, actually, I think this was the last Worldcon I went to. I was, I ended up on this panel that I was not qualified to be on, even in the slightest. So I was the moderator, which you know makes a lot of sense for me, I guess. But it was Greg Benford, Joe Haldeman, Norman Spinrad. Those three guys are substantially smarter than me one-on-one -on -one. and all three of them were on the same panel with me and at one point they started talking about things that I, I to, honestly to this day I still don't know what they were talking about but I looked down the audience and I did exactly what you said I looked at people's eyes and they were starting to glaze and so I stopped them and I said guys I have no idea what you're talking about just assume that I'm the dumbest person in this room can you explain everything that you just said in English for me? And I said, and then tell me how you can make people who are reading your stuff make sense of it. And it completely changed the context of the conversation. And it, all, all of a sudden, all, the whole crowd was engaged. So have you had those moments where you're looking out in the crowd and you go, ah, crap, these guys, uh, I've, got to, I've got to change tactics. I've actually practiced this with talking to my parents. Dad was an engineer and he was smart about engineering things and he understood a lot of technical details, but he was not a biologist. And he, he made no bones about the fact that he was not a biologist, he did not understand what I did. Uh, Mom's smart, she didn't have all of the education uh, opportunities that dad had but again both of them encouraged me they encouraged my sister and we practiced on them so I would watch my father and see that he was not understanding what I was talking about but the other practice and of course what I would do is I would then change the explanation when he started nodding his head I knew he got it and and I would move on but I used to watch fellow professors uh, and my seniors when I was a young faculty member 
try to talk to the press, try to talk to a reporter in an interview and answer a question and not be able to do so, they would not land their sentences. They would not keep an explanation to about 30 seconds. They would not answer the question that were asked. And then they would ramble. And I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to do that. Once that got noticed, I'm the guy that ended up having to give all of the interviews. <laughs> all right, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, what I wanna talk about, Rob, is bad uh, soap opera amnesia. We'll be right back. Cassandra Blake, an employee for the Ascension Planetary Holdings Group, the largest and most powerful corporation in Nova Columbia, has gone missing, and her sister wants to know why. When questions need answering on Nova Columbia, Detective Ezekiel Easy Novak is the man folks turn to. He gets results, one way or another. But what begins as a routine missing person case quickly turns into something much bigger and more sinister with implications that could affect the entire planet. It seems Cassandra wasn't just investigating her employer. She had uncovered a secret effort to excavate and exploit an ancient alien artifact known only as the Seraph. Soon, Easy finds himself trying to unravel a conspiracy that may implicate not only Ascension, but the cult-like Cosmic Ontological Foundation and the highest echelons of the Terran Confederation itself. Trouble Walked In by Mike Cooperie. Available for pre-order now on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. I don't know about you, Larry, but that book sounds awesome. And I think all of our listeners should go buy it right now. Welcome back. Glad to have uh, glad to have you back with us, Rob. And it's it's a pleasure to be sitting here talking with you. In the first part of the episode, we were talking sort of about the the whole thing of of making your story in your science and stuff like that. And and I guess this doesn't always just this doesn't just apply to science. It applies to anything that you're your subject matter expert in. But it's making it accessible to your readers. And I know that you had a question about this, Larry, or a thought. I did, and I, I kind of wanted to get uh, Rob's perspective on it. It's because it's, it's something that I've always thought of as the uh, the Michael Crichton school of writing, and that's where he would take like complex principles, uh, complex ideas, but he would write them in an entertaining way that was uh, accessible to the mass market, and so people would read a Michael Crichton novel and walk away as like, I know more about DNA, I know how. Topic X works. Uh, I think I kind of do that a little bit too because people read my books and they walk away thinking they know more about guns. And, and, and I think what it is is as the reader, you feel smart. You kind of feel like a reward. I do that with murder. It's the same thing. That's a little scary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, so my question for you, Rob, is: Is this something that you, because of because of your academic background, your and your and the depth of your knowledge, is this something that you have used? I can certainly say that I have felt the effect myself. Everything I know about physics I learned from Larry Niven books. So it is a very real effect. One of the things I have done with my own book is to try to explain the neuroscience behind the bionics. Why do they work? I try not to explain it too much. I don't want to do info dumps. But I want to also show 
the characters using what they have because I think that one of the things that makes it effective, what you just said about a Michael Crichton book, is that you see the characters using the science as opposed to explaining the science. And I think that is a major difference. I like that a lot. Now, what I think we're going to have a little bit of fun with now are bad brain tropes. Because, look, I read Born Identity, and and I uh, and I lived in Mexico for a year, so I quite understand telenovelas. Um, and so, what I want to hear, Rob, I want to hear from you some of the crazy brain tropes that you see in fiction, um, whether through the written word or TV. And I want to know why they don't work, but more importantly, because you're so good. We, we talked about the very, at the top of the episode, you're so good at giving rational, clear explanations of how things could be plausible. How can we make some of these terrible tropes, as we said before, the, the, you know, the, the bad soap opera amnesia, how can we make it a little bit more interesting? What are some, what are some tools that our listeners can use in their own writing? This actually brings me back to something that our graduate students do in the neuroscience program, was called Neuroscience and a Movie. And we would pick a public venue, show a movie, and then have a panel of experts discuss the science in the movie. The first time I was ever invited was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And there is a particular element of this where they're trying to trace the memory engram that is eluding the doctors whose job it is to remove the memory and they show a picture of a computer screen with a magnetic resonance imaging uh, picture on it, an MRI of the brain, which is static. And there's this little pink dot that's running around like Pac-Man. <laughs> and they're chasing the engram and I'm sitting there laughing because it's bad movie science. And then when I was asked to justify it and explain it, I said, I'm sorry, I can't. But bad movie brain science is a thing. And the perfect example is the soap opera amnesia. Person gets bonked on the top of their head, uh, a cardboard box falls, and they've got total amnesia for seven years. It's a totally different life. They don't remember a thing. And then seven years later, they get bonked on the, t on the top of the head again. And miraculously, through the science of soap opera, there is a totally different actor or actress playing the role at this point. And now they, <laughs> and now they have come back, and they regain all of the memory, and they go, oh my goodness, my husband, my children, my record collection. It's all seven years in the past, and everybody's moved on, and they don't know what's going on. Bad movie brain science or TV brain science. And amnesia is probably the most overused trope. The total amnesia, the total absence of any memory. But there are ways to make it very interesting because a lot of what we know with the brain science, the real brain science of amnesia is that it's not all or nothing. And it's not all one type. When a person has a stroke, they can get, have something called an agnosia. 
they can't remember the names of items, or they may uh, not remember the names of people. I'm sitting here holding a microphone, but I might be calling it a handheld voice thingy because I can't come up with the word microphone. You want to have an amnesia in a story, give the person an agnosia. Something that's very common with stroke, with Alzheimer's disease, uh, with other types of sudden head injury is aphasia. This is something that our military medics know very well. A person, I've heard this term thrown around a lot. Uh, recently it's been because of Bruce Willis. That's right. And, and I remember seeing an article about it and I'm like, I have no freaking idea what that means. It sounds terrible, but I have no idea what it is. So what is it? Aphasia is an inability to speak but it can also come in different flavors. You can have what's called a proper noun aphasia. You can't come up with the name for something. You can have a total aphasia, you can't speak. This is very common after a stroke. Uh, if I am remembering correctly, Willis's aphasia is one in which he can talk, but certain words won't come. This would then be a partial aphasia. And we see it with dementia, with Alzheimer's disease. We see it with head injury. We really see it with head injury. I have a very good friend who's a combat medic. And there is a routine they go through with a person who has suffered a head injury. And that routine includes, I will read you a list of words then I'll make you do something else, and you have to repeat to me that list of words. Well, what happened is the soldiers would memorize the list of words because the last thing they wanted was to be put on the traumatic brain injury or TBI protocol because then they'd be taken out of their, uh, out of their unit, sent to a hospital unit, and it would be some time before they could get back with their buddies. So they would memorize the list so that it would never appear that they had aphasia. And according to my combat medic friend, it hit them later. Like the guy who could only say spaghetti. Okay, so beyond the whole aphasia thing, which, which I now find, uh, I, I now kind of feel like I understand I can, and I can see how that can impact, uh, I mean, anybody but especially for someone like Bruce Willis, right? Like where he, he's saying that he, he's basically quitting acting because of it. I understand why now. What are some of the other, what are some of the other uh, types of, of memory loss or amnesia or whatever that, that people can experience? One of the most profound is called an agnosia. Uh, you know, agnostic, don't know, don't understand, don't remember. A more casual name for it might be a neglect. This is something that we see quite frequently with a head injury or stroke. A neglect means that as far as your brain is concerned, something doesn't exist. It could be a sound, it could be a visual area. So if you put your hand up, you can just barely so that you can just barely see it from your peripheral vision, but you still know it's there. With an agnosia, it's not there. And if there's not a hole there, there's nothing in there. 
you don't know there's a gap. You don't know there's anything missing. But your brain says, there's nothing there. Ignore this and move on. So agnosias would be one of the more interesting types of amnesia that you could instrument or you could include. And the reason I use the word instrument is because my brain was jumping ahead to, well, how would I put that in a story? What if you had a pilot with a head injury who all of a sudden can't even know that a certain bank of instruments are there? And maybe it's the fuel indicator, maybe it's the altitude indicator, maybe it's, it's something else. And if you can't see it, you might turn your head to look. But if you don't even know it's there, nothing you do can bring it to your attention. That would be a fascinating amnesia to incorporate in the story. What are some good examples of, of say, brain injuries or... Um, or uses of memory loss that you have seen in, in in fiction and why have they worked for you it's totally funny but 51st Dates includes a short term amnesia called anterograde amnesia soap opera amnesia is retrograde goes backward you forget the past Anterograde amnesia, you forget forward. And what actually is happening is every time we are experiencing the world around us, that memory goes into what amounts to a temporary buffer. It has to be written out to permanent storage later. But if something interrupts that, anesthesia, for example, or a head injury or something like that, then the permanent record doesn't get written and you lose it. But there are conditions in the brain that will cause you to not form the permanent memories. And a lot of times they involve damage to a part of the brain called the hippocampus. This happens to be the one that I've spent most of my time studying because it's where the codes for new memories are created. And there are individuals who have a malfunctioning hippocampus, they can't create the new codes. And so they don't make the long-term memories. And the whole premise of 51st Dates was a young lady who had anterograde amnesia. And in the neurosciences, there is a very famous case from the 1950s in which a patient had a drastic surgery to stop epileptic seizures it damaged the hippocampus, and from that date on, and he lived to a ripe old age, from that date on, he could not make a new permanent memory. Once post-it notes existed, his house was covered with post-it notes. And the while the movie is kind of a silly romance, the amnesia used was real, and it was done right. That would be the same effect as the movie Memento? Yes, very much so. It very much the same. That's another perfect example. Yeah, because that was well, that would that would be because he, he was he was not able to he had like an eight was it like a two minute or an eight minute span and then he had like and then that was it. And then it was just it was just reset continually. And that was actually that was some fascinating storytelling right there. That was really interesting. Yes, Memento is a very good example of that. 
the patient whose case every single neuroscience student learns uh, the case of HM, we knew him by his initials because for protection of the identity, we only knew the initials from the case files. Uh, his span was 10 minutes. And so yes, very close to that and very temporary. Uh, earlier, when I was listening to one of the uh, addresses you did today, it was your it was your science guest of honor speech. You talked about the famous case of Phineas Gage, and that's one that a lot of people have heard of. But I thought your take was really interesting on it because it's one of those we've all heard of it, but how much of it is actually true? That is both a written history lore and an oral memory lore aspect. Phineas Gage was a railroad foreman who suffered an accident that damaged part of the frontal part of his brain. The frontal lobe is where we make decisions about right, wrong, is this risky, not risky. It's also where there appears to be a lot of the circuitry that underlies personality. Primarily, we know this because if you damage it, these are the effects that you see. We can't really say this is where it sits. We can say if you damage it, this is what happens. And Phineas Gage was tamping a blasting charge with a long six-foot iron rod with a sharpened end, and he used the flattened end to tamp down the charges. Something was wrong, and the charge went off, and it drove this iron rod it entered his cheek, came out above his eye, and landed some 20 feet away. So it was moving at a pretty good clip. And the man walked off the field to the, the medic and said, I think something happened. Well, props for that. I mean, like, rub some dirt on it. I mean, that, that, that dude, he, I bet he would have had a fantastic football career. <laughs> I'm sure he could uh, uh, take two ibuprofen, drink a bottle of water, and change his socks. <laughs> it, this actually happened to somebody I know. Suffered a gunshot wound in Afghanistan. And it was one that entered the skull, but he walked away from it. He walked off. And this is an interesting thing. It says more about what we call the plasticity of the brain. The brain's ability to reroute around an injury. Again, gets us back to bad movie brain science. Someone has a brain injury and either it's permanent, which yeah, it can be, or it's instantly gone, there's no effect. You know, the guy gets beat up. The private investigator gets beat up in one scene and he has no bruises the next. Well, when it comes to the brain, you don't see the bruises, and they certainly stick around for a long time. But what happened with Gage is there was a personality change. There was a change in his ability to do his job. That's what we hear. There's more to the story, and there's reports that he recovered quite a bit in his later life. That's one source that tells us that, and several sources that tell us about the personality change and unable to work. So 
we don't actually know the whole truth of it. But on the other hand, what we do know is it makes a really interesting story that we can incorporate into our writing. I'm kind of curious as to, uh, you've referenced a couple times different segments of the brain. I'm wondering if you could give just a real quick kind of uh, brain dissection, I guess. Uh, you know, the front is this, this side is this, the back is this. The first thing I, I tell people to do, take their hand, hold it up at eye level, face it away from them, We're bring your fingers, bring your fingers together and make a fist with your thumb on the bottom. And yes, I'm looking around We're with everybody doing, doing exactly this. Okay, so your knuckles, that's the frontal lobe of the brain. Your thumb is the temporal lobe. Across the back of your hand is the parietal lobe. And right where your wrist would be is the occipital lobe. So knuckles, frontal, is what we call executive function. This is decision making. This is judging risk. Risk. The thumb is what we call the temporal lobe, and it is where your auditory system is, your auditory cortex. It's also where the hippocampus, which is heavily involved in memory, also the amygdala involved in emotion. The parietal section across the back of your wrist is where your sensory information is processed. So touch, uh, position, uh, feel, and then the, uh, the occipital at the back, right where your hand reaches the wrist, is where your visual system is. And so going from back to front, you have vision, then hearing, then the ability to move, the motor section that's right between the frontal and the parietal. And then as you get to the front, you get to the decisions. So you go from seeing to putting all of that together, to putting it into motion, and then the area that helps you make those decisions. <laughs> this is awesome. I love this. Uh, and, and it was pretty awesome. All of us were in the room, we were all doing the thing, and we, we all had our hands up and stuff. This was awesome. I, I was just as you were doing as you were doing the names. All I could think of was the movie The Water Boy, and it was uh, his medulla oblongata. <laughs> now that's brainstem. Yeah, yeah. And as we all know from Pinky and the Brain, brainstem, brainstem. <laughs> yeah. so, and as, and as I was saying, a, a fine example of neuroscience in in a movie. You know? uh, I, I approve of the taking over the world part, though, for sure. All right, Rob. Before we go, I want you to, because we've, we've enjoyed your company, we're so grateful for you to come here, that, that you were able to come here and chat with us for a little bit. And with your new novel coming out next March, I think everybody can really look forward to that um, and, and see some of the Six Million Dollar Man references and stuff, and I'm, I'm pretty stoked for that. But before we go, we have a lot of aspiring authors in our audience, obviously. Um, shockingly, we have quite a few who are too, who just like listening to the fascinating stories and the, and the, and the information of which, good freaking grief, you've shared a ton today. And, and so those people are going to be excited, but I don't care about them right now. I care about the aspiring authors. What is your one piece of advice to the aspiring author? 
the one piece of advice has to do with sub subject matter experts. And I started off as a subject matter expert well before I became a writer. And really, one of the best ways to find a subject matter expert is to come to a con and go up to a person after a talk. I spend a lot of time at Science Track on the various cons. That's what I'm doing here at FenCon. I have had so many people come up to me and say, oh, oh, Dr. Hampson, I hope you don't mind, but can I ask you a question? The answer to that is, oh, please do. That's what I'm here for. Don't be afraid to ask a question. And in fact, don't be afraid to ask in a public forum, is there someone who can answer this question? Because frankly, somebody who's good at doing their science or their subject matter and who's good at communicating it wants to be asked questions. I want to be asked questions. If I can sit down with somebody for, and I believe I've just spent possibly the previous two and a half hours answering questions for people that came up to me, that's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. Dr. Rob Hampson, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule, answering questions for everybody so that you could answer our questions. Because again, Larry and I are, are we're accountants. We, uh, we don't do sciencey thingies. Well, yeah, Rob, you, you've been a big help to me over the years on, on various projects and it is much appreciated. And I know you've helped a lot of writers. So thank you for coming on. It really is appreciated. Thank you for having me. I have enjoyed this immensely. I've been a reader for a long time, and I absolutely love you guys' stuff. And when I come to a convention, I'm here reveling in all of the authors as well. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, again, to all you listeners of the Writer Dojo, we appreciate you, and we appreciate all the goodwill and all the and all the good talks that we've had here at FenCon with you all. Uh, but you know what, sometimes we have to go. We don't have all the time in the world. And so for today, that's all we have. This is the Writer Dojo, and we'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nyberg. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that you might possibly need a thingy in the brainy to help I you I think remember? I might need a thingy in the brainy to make me thinky. <laughs>